so uh, no more degrees for me, but I enjoyed uh, the educational pursuits and the accomplishments and achievements. And I got to think about Nicodemus today. I don't know if you know it or not, but Pharisees walked around in a garb, a robe that was so distinguishable that when they went to the city markets, when they walked the streets of Jerusalem, when they went into the place of worship, everyone knew who they were. I mean, it was a certain kind of apparel that they wore. No matter who they were talking to or where they went, everyone recognized there's a Pharisee by what he was wearing. And every morning, I believe, when he got up, he put on this garb and he wore it everywhere he went because, you see, a Pharisee is simply defined as a separatist, someone that is separated from the others. And they are law experts. They study the law. They divide the law. They interpret the law. They enforce the law. And Nicodemus, we are told, was a ruler of the Sanhedrin. He was the top of the echelon. Jesus says, you are not just a teacher in a synagogue. You are a teacher over all of Israel. This guy was filled with pomp and circumstance. It took him a lifetime of accomplishments and achievements to arrive at this status. And everywhere he walked and everywhere he went and everyone he talked to understood that's Nicodemus the Pharisee, the ruler of the, the political party that's in charge, he is the man. And he walked around all day dressed like this. And I, I can't imagine that this man, I don't know for a fact, because I don't know his mind or his heart, but I can, man, I, I can imagine like when I walked down the aisle on that day when I got my doctorate finally, there was, there was a sense of pride. And, and you should be proud. But we should be humbled, really, because if it were not for the grace of God, no one would have achieved anything. We have a tendency, I think, when we wear garb like this, and people esteem us and applaud us and recognize us and look at us and put us on a pedestal, that we have a tendency, if we're not careful, to elevate ourselves to a place and a position that's not rightful ours. And I think Nicodemus kind of walked around a little bit like that, I think. It was hard not to when everyone continued to elevate him and, and applaud him and esteem him, especially when, I got, when he got up to teach the, the people of Israel. He was a, a legalist and a teacher of Israel, not just a synagogue. So he was a, an important guy who had an important office who was esteemed everywhere he went as Mr. Important. And he walked around dressed like this. Not like this, but you know what I'm talking about. Actually, it was more colorful than what I'm wearing and more noticeable and more recognizable. Imagine if I walked, to, walked into Dylan's this afternoon wearing this. Anybody would bow or kiss my ring? or How absurd we would think today, but not in Nicodemus' day. And the Pharisees walked around, especially those in the Sanhedrin, with incredible prominence, prestige, and power, and political influence, Everybody, everybody knew who they were. And I can only imagine that when Jesus was approached by Nicodemus at night, that Nicodemus wore his garb. You think? I think he wore his garb. Because he's approaching Jesus on somewhat equal footing. 
Because after all, he's, he's a man of prominence and power and prestige and position and has political influence and a teacher of the law. And he's going to come to Jesus by night because he's afraid to be seen by his peers. Because why are you there? We haven't sent you. So why are you investigating this Jesus? And he was himself curious. And I think there's other reasons why Nicodemus came. But I think he came with his garb on to show Jesus who he was. As if Jesus didn't know who he was already. Not on the exterior, but on the interior of his heart. Because nothing escapes Jesus and the the eyes that he has to see past the facade and past the religiosity and past the pomp and the circumstance, the piosity and all of that and see his heart. And when he approached Jesus, he approached Jesus with three very critical questions. Jesus, is the kingdom about to be ushered in through you? He, He recognized Jesus. He approached Jesus with a lot of respect. Because he said, you know, no one can do these things except worry from God. And are you ushering in the kingdom? And you said, well, you got to be born again to see the kingdom. He said, well, can an old man enter into my mother's womb? How's that possible? And he said, no, 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 it's only possible by the power of the Spirit. And he said, well, please explain. What does that mean? And Jesus takes the time to explain what he means to Nicodemus, as if Nicodemus didn't really already know. But I think he was playing innocent to hear Jesus' explanation. But the underlying heart condition of Nicodemus was what I believe drew him to Jesus in the middle of the night. And I almost wanted to call this message Nick at Night. Yeah, Nick at Night. And you know what I'm talking about. If you're a Nickelodeon, then Nick at Night. So Nick approaches Jesus at night, wearing his garb. And Jesus sees right through him. And in the text that we're going to read today, Jesus is going to boom, wow, and show Nicodemus, I know exactly, dude, who you are and the fact that you put on all this stuff, but you know and I know that you're not really what you project. Others might see and you may want others to see, but the reality is you're struggling. And I think Nicodemus is struggling with his own sense of security. He doesn't know whether or not he's going to see the kingdom of God. Because in spite of all his religious doctrine and all of his religious rightness, he knows that he doesn't measure up to the standard, to the letter of the law that he's proclaiming and forcing others to live up to and projecting that he is when deep down inside he knows, I'm not really sure I'm going to see the kingdom of God. And I better go check this Jesus house to make sure that he's the real deal. We have this conversation with Jesus, and it's interesting that Jesus says three critical questions that I want us to take a look at because he's saying to Nicodemus and to us today, on my own, I don't stand a chance. Nicodemus is on his own here. All of my work ethic, all of my discipline, all of my sacrifice, all of my righteousness, all of my understanding of the law and the enforcement of the law and seeking to live out the law, I know that I don't measure up. And on my own, I know I don't have a chance. Neither does he or we. None of us have a chance on our own without Jesus. No matter what we project, no matter matter what others may think, or no matter what or how others may elevate us to a certain position, none of us can, can make it on our own. And without him, we're, we're lost. Because Jesus came to save, 
not to judge. And we're going to take a look at that. So John 3, beginning with verse 19, we see that Jesus, in this dialogue with Nicodemus, reveals himself as the light. He reveals himself as the light. A light is a metaphor. It's a, it's a phrase that he uses, meaning I am the source of the revelation of God. I am God in the flesh, incarnate. I am the divine, the one who was preexistent in heaven, who came down to this earth in the form of a God-man named Jesus, born of a virgin. And I and I alone, Nicodemus, me and me alone, I'm the only one who is pure. I am the only one who is righteous. I am the only one who is without sin. Imagine that. And all the work ethic of Nicodemus, Jesus is standing before him and saying, not only are you a sinner, but I'm the only one who is sinless. And I have come as the divine example or revelation of God and his purity and his holiness to expose the darkness. I am the light. Interesting, I just want to read these passages in John 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning, John says the word was... Uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him there was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Again in John eight twelve, not on your screen, then Jesus spoke to them, and He said, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 9, 5 said, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world, Jesus says. Again, John 12, 35, 36, Jesus answered them and said, the light will be with you only a little longer. Walk while you have the light so the darkness doesn't overtake you. The one who walks in darkness doesn't know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of the light. And then finally in John 12, 46, I have come as a light into the world so that everyone who believes in me would not remain in darkness. Jesus is the light who came into our darkness, into our despair, into our depravity. Now notice how Jesus explains himself in this text in the very opening sentence of verse 19 as the light. He says, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world. And this is the judgment, the light has come into the world. Is Jesus saying that he came to judge the darkness, to judge the sinner, to judge our depravity, to judge our sin? What about what he says earlier in John three sixteen? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus did not come to judge. Jesus came to save. That's why he came. He came not to judge but to save. Write these passages down in John three sixteen, John twelve forty seven, and John twelve forty four. Jesus said, "I came to seek and to save the lost." That was the reason why he came. He is the revelation of the standard of God, not to condemn, not to judge, but to save. I am the light who have come to the world to save. So why does he mention judgment here? 
I find that interesting, and it, man, I wrestled with this all week long, and to be honest with you, I wanted to avoid this passage altogether because it was just blowing my mind. Why did Jesus make this statement? And in my study, here's my conclusion, and I pray and hope it's right. If it's not, we're all doomed. I'm just kidding. None of us are infallible. Only the Word of God is infallible, but I've concluded this very thing, that while he came to save... When he came into the darkness of the world, the moment that happened, judgment began. It began then and is still ongoing. You see, light can only do what light can do. It dispels the darkness. It shines the light on where you are, who you are, and what you are doing And when the light came, it reflected, revealed what the darkness is doing, what those who are living in the darkness does. And and judgment, when Christ came, began because he's about to say, those who believe in me are not condemned, but those who don't believe are condemned already. When Jesus came, that was the beginning, the initiation of the judgment of Christ, not because Jesus came to judge, but because man's sin alone makes him guilty before a holy God and stands condemned already. And so he's the revelation of the light. And so this judgment we see here, he reveals his commission not to judge, but he came to save. That's his commission to save. And he's telling Nicodemus in this dialogue, in this conversation, I have come to seek and to save the lost Not to judge sinners, but to save sinners. You're already judged and you're already condemned because you know in your heart, Nicodemus, that you're a sinner and you don't live up to the standard of God. And that conviction that you're feeling is the Holy Spirit that is drawing him to Jesus, that is helping him see and understand his lostness and his sinfulness. So he's being judged by his own understanding and his perception of his sin. And so he is the revelation of light. And he reveals his commission, but he reveals to Nicodemus his condition. Because he said, as we talked last week, and I don't want to go over it again, but just very quickly, just sort of recap. Verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. When Nicodemus came to Jesus, <laughs> I've got a feeling he's stepping into the light. He's stepping into the light because Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And he is coming to Jesus. And he's stepping out of darkness and he's facing Jesus and he's in the light and he's being exposed for his condition. And he said, what do you mean i got to be born again? Got to enter my mother's womb? No, you got to be born of the Spirit. It's not something you control or something you do. It's something that the Holy Spirit does. He seeks you out, convicts you of your sin, and convinces you that Jesus is. And he calls you by name and draws you unto yourself. And he exposes your sinful condition. And what you're sensing, and I think what you're feeling at this moment, Nicodemus, about your own sinful condition is that you know and you understand that you need someone outside yourself to do for you what you cannot what you have been trying, but you cannot do for yourself. It's something the Spirit does. The work of the Spirit through the work of the Son accomplishes one's salvation. I am the revelation of light. 
I'm revealing to you my commission. I'm revealing your condition. I came to save you. And the reason I came to save you is because your condition is that you're a sinner, Nicodemus. But notice, not only you're a sinner, but you are condemned. Right now, you are already condemned. We've not even gone to the final judgment in Revelation in the great white throne judgment where all will be judged by Jesus himself. You are already condemned. Notice verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. Romans 8.1 says what? Anybody know what that says? Romans 8.1, come on. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, the difference between us and the world is that when we put our faith and trust in Jesus and we believe in him, we are therefore now no longer condemned. Our condemnation was placed upon the cross and Jesus died for our sin and our faith in that redemptive work where he took upon himself our sin against God, that trust in that, now we are no longer condemned. But those who do not believe in him are condemned already. Any unbeliever you know right now that doesn't put their trust and faith and confidence in Jesus isn't going to be condemned at the great white throne judgment. They're already condemned because of their sin. For Jesus came as the light to reveal not only did he come to save because of man's condition, but because of our state of condemnation. And Nicodemus, I think, at this point is feeling pretty pretty uncomfortable being in the light in the presence of Jesus. I, well, one of the greatest joys I had when I was in DeSoto, Texas, pastoring there, I became a chaplain of the DeSoto Police Department, and it was a great joy to be, the, to, to be a part of that. And I became a part of the family, and it was a great experience. And I, I, I got invited a lot to ride with guys and, and did some weddings and some marriage counselings and some family counseling. It was, it was a great time. Um, but one of the neat things that I really like doing is I like going to lunch with those guys. Because when you walk into a restaurant with about eight or nine police officers totally decked out with their guns and all that, the atmosphere changes in the restaurant. Everybody all of a sudden seems guilty of something, whether they're guilty or not. It's awesome. You can sense the, the mood change. It, it, I mean, the dynamic of the restaurant, eight or nine of us walk in, and I'm the only one plain dress guy, so I'm kind of pretending like maybe I'm undercover or, you know, <laughs> the chief of police or something. And so I walk in, and, and the whole, really, the other day I was driving into to the church, to the office, and everybody was going slow below the speed limit. I couldn't figure out why, and I was going, you know, five over. You know, they say, you know, under eight, you're okay. You know, above nine, you're mine. So I, I was driving five, at, five over, and, and I've been with enough police officers at five over, and I, I pass in. What, what was in front of everybody? A police officer. They're afraid. Why? He has authority. He has power. He can pull you over and write you a ticket. And, and we should respect our police officers. And, and, uh, and I'm so, so blessed to have men and women who will give their lives to protect our lives. But why are we afraid of police officers? I think Nicodemus was in the presence of Jesus and the atmosphere was beginning to change in this conversation. 
And he was feeling a little bit, uh-oh. But you know what? It ain't over. Because Jesus is going to stick his finger in his hurt and wiggle it a little bit. You ever been to the doctor and you say, this hurts right here? And they touch it? Don't do that! Why? It hurts! But they got to mess with it, you know, and they're digging around in there. And, and Jesus is doing that with, with Nicodemus, and he's going to do that with us. And the next point, because you see, the problem with the revealed light, the light can be resisted. We see the revelation of the light, but let's look at the resistance to the light. Why does Nicodemus and unbelievers in the world that we live in, why do they resist and reject the light? If he came to save, not condemn, and our condition is hopeless and lost without him, we are destined to an eternal separation from God in a place called hell without him, why then would we not run to the light? Why not? If someone was trying to save your life and you were drowning and you were hopeless and you were about to go under, you would want to do everything you can to reach out to them. And instead of that, unbelievers resist the light. Jesus is about to reveal the nature of our lost culture. It's almost like Romans 6 and 7 here. It's, it's the precursor to Paul's writing in Romans 6 and 7 where he talks about the depravity of unbelief. And notice what he says in the text. Verse 19, second part. And people loved the darkness rather than light. Why do they resist Jesus, who is the light? Because they love the darkness rather than light. Depravity, sin, loves darkness. I mean, let's face it. I'm going to say this, and I'm glad this is not Children's Sunday. Sin is fun. Isn't it? Come on. It's fun. It appeals to our depravity. It feeds our carnal nature. It, it elevates self. And the reason why unbelievers gravitate to it is because they love. They, they have feelings. They have passion they have devotion to the darkness they love it that's why they don't come to the light they love the darkness and because they love the darkness notice the works they do are evil not good why notice that they love darkness rather than the light because their works are evil the reason why they love the darkness is because what they are doing is evil, it is wicked, it is sinful, it is selfish, it is prideful, it is carnal, it is degenerate. And that depravity loves the darkness. It loves it and it won't come into the light. It doesn't want to. It wants to stay in the darkness because it, it loves it. And it doesn't want anything different. But notice he says in verse 20, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light. Not only do they love what they're doing and they stay in the dark, but they hate the light. They hate it. They hate the light. They hate Jesus. The world that we live in hates Jesus that is unbelieving. And we marvel at that. 
Why, why, why don't they accept us? Why, why won't they be nice to Jesus? Why, don't they, why won't they be kind to Christians? Why? Because they hate Jesus. That is a strong emotional feeling. They hate him. They loathe him. They despise the light. They don't want the light. They love their darkness because they're doing dark things, evil, wicked, carnal, sinful things. And because of that, they love that. And they hate the light. They hate it. But notice second part of verse 20, and does not come into the light. Because they hate it, they refuse to come into the light. I ain't going over there. I hate it. Why, why do we move toward things we hate? We don't. The strong emotion. I hate it, and because I hate it, I'm not going into the light. Why won't I go into the light? It says here, the last part of verse 20, least his works should be exposed. Why won't they come into the light? Because if I go in the light, my deeds, my works, my wickedness, my depravity is going to be exposed. I don't want to be exposed. I don't want somebody to tell me that I'm living sinful, wicked, vile, degenerate, carnal, selfish, prideful life. I don't want anybody to do that. And so I, I'm, I'm just not coming. I, I'm going to stay over here. And you can pull and tug on me all you want, but, but I ain't coming. He's talking to Nicodemus here. Nicodemus is a religious, righteous, hardworking zealot, leader in the church. And in his self-righteousness, in his religious righteousness, at the core, he is a sinner who hates the light that he is in. Why? Because by nature, he hates the light. Our sinful, depraved, lost, carnal nature apart from Jesus in unbelief hates the light. Before you became a believer, you hated the light. You didn't want to come into the light. You didn't want to do godly thing. You couldn't because you're in the darkness and you love darkness. You love wickedness. You love sin. And, and you're just not coming because you know if you come, you're going to have to do one of three things. Either you're going to have to admit that you're living in sin and turn to Jesus, or you're going to have to ignore your lostness and your depravity, or you're going to have to, are you ready for this? Redefine it. It's what our world is doing with the King Obama who is mandating policy, telling us we have to embrace now people who think they're women when they're really men or women who really think they're men and they dress like it, but biologically they are not, and we're told we're supposed to accommodate them in our bathrooms. They, they don't want to be exposed for their differences because deep down in their core, they want to be accepted for their depravity. Why? Because they're lost. And they despise the Christian standard and the divine standard of God that continues to expose that what they're doing is wrong. It is wicked. It is sinful. It is vile. It is depraved. They don't want anything to do with it. But what we as a church try to do, rather than bring salvation to them, we're trying to get them to conform to our standard without the new birth. <laughs> and that's as ridiculous as, as their position. Because they're not going to live like we unless they first come into the light and accept the light and are born again by the Spirit. And, and they're just not. And so why do we marvel? Why are we stunned, church, 
by a culture who's slowly getting worse and worse and worse and worse. Well, some of you are old enough to remember it's gotten pretty bad, hasn't it? Those of you who are over 60, come on. How about some of you are over 35? And it's rapidly getting worse. And you know what? It's not going to get any better because Jesus is coming. And before he comes, it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse, church. And this bathroom standard is going to be inflicted on the church. It is. Oh, it'll never happen. Really? How many things are happening today that you thought would never happen? Come on. That'll never happen in America. This is America. Really? Look where we're going. I mean, we're going to, pretty soon when you birth a child, it's, it's not going to put gender on there. You're just going to be able to put it when they grow of age and they can write whatever gender they want. Well, you know what? I, I think I'm Australian and I'm 32 years old and that's what I want to be. So just accept me for what I claim because that's my perception of myself. Therefore, you must accept me as I perceive myself to be rather than who I really am. That's, that's, that's the world. Now, religious right, Here, here's the bad news. I, I only have a few more minutes, I know. We're no different than the world. Our nature is still the same as it was before we were saved. Seriously. Our nature is still the same. Now, we've been born of the Spirit, and we have a new nature, and we have a new heart, a new mind, and soul. But you know what? I've seen, and I have been guilty myself, of stepping out of the light into darkness in unbelief. And so have you. The only difference between us and the unbelieving world is that we have the Holy Spirit that resides within us, that has sealed us by his power and his presence, that convicts us and convinces us that when we step into the light, that's wrong. And that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and we repent and we turn. The only difference between us and the world, you're just and I am, we are just as depraved as the world. So should we marvel and be stunned by sometimes behavior of Christians who often make choices that unbelievers make and live lifestyles of unbelievers? When we ourselves are just as guilty of sometimes doing the same. But we whitewash it, don't we? Don't we? The difference between us is we believe in Jesus and there's therefore now no condemnation to those of us who are in Christ. And we still need grace and mercy and love. Today's study was about Samson. Patty and I were talking about that today. A deliverer who needs a deliverer. We all, like Samson, he made some stupid choices, didn't he? Didn't he? If those of you are in life group, if you're not in life group, you need to be in life group. We sometimes step into the darkness because of our unbelief. And, you know, when, a lot of times I've seen, I've seen believers over here, they're in the dark. They don't want to come to the light. They don't want to. 
But this is the beauty part in the last part of the sentence, not only the resistance to the light, because light can be resisted. I didn't read the text, but it was on the screen. The reason for the light. Interesting verse 21, and we're going to close with this. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may clearly seen, be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. I like that whoever, that is all-inclusive for everyone who loves the darkness, stays in the darkness, but whoever does, yet it is all-inclusive, whoever does a reflection here of one's behavior, a choice that one makes, what is true? If you conform, if you comply to that which is true, how do you do that? I think the word here is repentance, because notice, but whoever does what is true comes to the light. To, to me, that's repentance. You're in the darkness, and you're depraved, and you're doing works of wickedness and sin, vile, prideful, selfish things, and all of a sudden, the Spirit woos you into the light, and you turn, and you turn toward the light, and you step into the light. You did that when you were saved. You step into the light. You turn your back on the darkness, and you step into the light so that what could clearly be seen, notice that his works have been carried out in God. Who gave you the power to turn from darkness into light? Your own self-will? The power of God. Notice that his works have been carried out, how? In God. God is your power source who not only convicts but empowers us to turn from sin and turn toward grace. Our salvation is purely by grace through faith. We did not, and he's telling Nicodemus, dude, you can't work for it. You can't work for it. You can't do it in and of yourself. You need a little bit of humility in all of your pride. Pride says, I do it myself. So my granddaughter the other day said to me, you know, a couple of years back, I used this in illustration. I wanted to help her tie her shoes. She said, no, Doc, I do it myself. She's going to do it herself. And she tried for about five minutes and couldn't do it and finally said, Doc, would you tie my shoes? Well, we want children to do it themselves at some point. When they're 17 and you're still tying their shoes, there's something wrong. Salvation is something that God does. And he, in his power and his strength, by the wooing of his spirit, we turn in the strength that is provided through the spirit in the work of Christ, and we turn, and we turn from darkness into light, and he saves us because it is a work that's been carried out in God. But I, I like the, the verbiage here. It's an ongoing empowerment. Because once we turn, empowered by God's Spirit, to turn from darkness and walk in the light, He continues to empower, He continues to equip, He continues to engage us as we continue, as we keep on going, as we continue to walk in the light. It's not in our power, but it's in His strength. And when we turn, verse 14 and 15, and Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The next verse. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his one only son that whosoever believeth in him would not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Not through yourself, but through him. So the invitation, I think, that he's given to Nicodemus is step into the light. That's our invitation today. Step into the light. I don't care how religious you claim to be and others think you are. You need to step into the light. I don't care how depraved you may be. You may be masquerading it and hiding it. You're lost and in need of a Savior. Jesus came to save you. And whatever you're sensing and feeling, if you will turn from sin and the power of the Spirit because of the work of Christ and trust in Him, you can be and will be saved. And therefore, there will be no condemnation to you who are in Christ Jesus. And he will wash you white as snow. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things will become new. There is no sin, no depravity, no wickedness, no vile behavior or conduct that the grace and the blood of Jesus cannot cleanse. And if you're a believer today who is turned into the darkness, Jesus is saying, come back to the light. And I'm convinced if you're a true believer, you can't live in the darkness very long without the Holy Spirit making you as miserable as you possibly can. And I pray that he does that in your life. Because if you can live in darkness and feel nothing, sense nothing, convicted of nothing, and just live there and camp out there, (laughs) I wonder if you've ever really truly been born again. Because even the prodigal son was broken by God and brought him home. And my prayer is that God will break your stubborn pride and bring you into the light, bring you home. So the final question is simply this. Am I trying to make it on my own? I thought about Nicodemus as we close. All in his garb. Conversation's over. He's walking back to his palace maybe or maybe back to the temple, reflecting upon all that he's been exposed. I wonder if he walked back like this or like this broken I wonder as he walked into the market or as he walked through the city streets or as he walked into the place of worship was there a change because see I'm convinced that when we see ourselves as God sees us When we really see ourselves as God sees us and all of our depravity and all of our sin and wickedness and vile, if we think, I'm a pretty good person, you know? God, you're lucky to have me. Or if we see ourselves in all of our depravity, our unable to to save ourselves and our lostness, and as we continue to, to walk in the Spirit and keep in step with the Spirit, and we continue, I mean, we are still, even though we're saved and believe, we still. We still struggle, don't we? And that depravity is still a reality. And when we see our true nature in light of God, how he sees us, would that not affect how we worship him? I think probably one of the main reasons, Pastor Mark, that people aren't in here just shouting like they would be at a WSU ball game is because we're just not cognizant 
of how sinful we really are and how we were depraved and in darkness and what God did through us through the work of the Spirit and the work of Christ on the cross and how he, he saved us. Because once we come to terms with that, how can we sit We sang a song in our last deal. Well, I'm going to change it up. We're going to sing that song again. Okay? Come on up. I love that song because it reminds me that without him, I'm doomed. I have no righteousness of my own. I bring nothing to the equation, nothing to the table. It's all because of him, all through him, and all in him. And he, in my faith in that work on the cross, gives me this wonderful salvation that I enjoy. And in spite of my salvation, I'm still, I hate to admit this to you, but I'm still struggling. (laughs) And I expect to struggle until I die. And so should you. But isn't it great to know that we have a Savior who understands that, loves us anyway. Anyway. As you make your way in this morning, let me encourage you uh, to prepare your hearts and minds for a time of worship this morning. We have the awesome privilege this morning of beginning our worship time with the ordinance of baptism. Baptism is the ability for someone who's come to know Christ as their Savior and Lord to give that testimony visibly. And this morning we have Marcy. And if you are part of Marcy's family, Uh, or her life group, would you stand so that we could recognize you this morning? Marcy, if you ask Jesus to come into your heart to be your savior and your boss, and it is your desire to be marked as his follower for the rest of your life. Yes. Because of that decision, it's my privilege this morning to get to baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're buried with Christ in baptism, and we're raised to walk in newness of life.
to you so much in the sense that uh, you have such a, such a passion and desire to learn God's Word and um, be in God's Word every day, and you've passed that on to us, and I just appreciate that so much. In order to get us all mixed together, he made student leadership, and it was probably the best thing that ever happened to our youth group. It was a place where he taught us, for the first time any of us have heard about, when you become a Christian, your goal and your job is to serve. And that's the entire point of student leadership, is that we get to serve people in the church and other people. And it's brought us all so close together, we're like a family. I remember the first time I ever saw Matt, it was me coming up to the third floor. I was filling out my card and it said to do print only and I only write cursive most of the time. So I asked, why can't I write in cursive? And then Christy, his wife, was standing up there and she said, well, that's because he can't read cursive and Matt was just jokingly agreeing. Then from then on, he was kind of like the intro and then Matt just kind of, he just kind of integrated. He does a great job, and I love the guy a lot. I think one of the things I appreciate about you most, Matt, is how you're not, you're just Matt. You're not Mr. Willard or Mr. Matt. <laughs> you're just Matt. And as backhanded as that sounds, it's probably one of the most important things to all of us in your student ministry. And I think you realize that, how relatable you are to us. I mean, you're like my oldest friend, but you know, we can just insult you and about just dumb stuff and just text you and do all those things and you know, you're just so close to us. You don't, you're not standoffish or anything. Even when you talk about how you like to isolate yourself and you're kind of introverted, you're still making an effort to uh, connect with us in such a great way. Matt, you've always encouraged us to go out into our community and have gospel conversations and to make them intentional. And um, we've seen God work in mighty ways when we've actually done that. So thank you for all the encouragement and um, everything you do to help us grow closer to Christ and to each other. I just uh, just want to thank you for how much you've uh, impacted my life and uh, really, really led me towards Christ. You greet everyone with open arms and I just want to thank you for everything that you do. We know that you work too lead young people to Christ and you will continue to do it for years to come, so uh, for that I thank you. I genuinely believe that uh, you were put in our lives at a specific time and a specific place so that you could impact us, to impact our church, um, our city, and even those places that God has called us to go. He always goes to God before every decision, and as seniors, when we're in such a transitional point in our life, that's a really good example that we have needed. Hey Matt. Thank you for all you've done over the past seven years with all of us being inside your youth group. It's been a fun experience and I've had a great time. I want to thank you for being a great youth youth pastor. I want to thank you for being there for us and for conveying what God has to teach us. Thank you. Thanks for all the memories and all the words of wisdom and uh, everything you've done for our youth group. Thanks for everything. Tell about you. You know, I just want to say thank you. One of the highest honors I can uh, present to someone is that they've helped me in my walk with Christ and helped me grow and know more about God. And I can't think of a man more deserving to give that to than you. So I just want to say thank you. Oh, and I mean, I guess you're funny. Kinda. Funny looking. 
Uh, we are here to uh, recognize some of our graduating seniors today, so uh, please, uh, as they are announced, you're welcome to clap or applaud. We don't make you wait till the end, so we just love them all equally, right? So uh, here we go. First, we have Daniel Albertson. Come on, Daniel. Stand next to me. All right. Daniel's graduating from Eisenhower High School and plans to attend Washburn University. He says, Emmanuel has taught me to be patient when things aren't going well and to trust that it's all for a reason. Plans for the future, he says, to become a high school band director. So there you go. Yeah. You can stand over here, Dan. Next, we have Bryant Hart. Bryant Hart. Bryant is graduating from Northwest High School and plans to attend Boyce College in Southern Seminary. Not Boys College. Boyce College. Uh, it says, Emmanuel has taught me, whenever there's a Baptist gathering, this is important, go get the good desserts first because the before the main meal because they disappear almost instantly. <laughs> Plans for the future. He says, after college, I would like to come back to Emmanuel, maybe teach a life group and serve alongside Matt as youth pastor. So there you go. I hear there might be an opening. That was the news this morning. <laughs> Next, we have Katie Knudsen. Katie is graduating from Northwest High School and plans to attend Wichita State University. Says, Emmanuel has taught me, growing up at Emmanuel, God has shaped me and taught me how to lead a life that looks like Jesus. She says, thank you, Emmanuel family, for leading and discipling me to be a leader and disciple. Plans for the future. I am not sure what my plans are after college, but it's a book that I am ready for God to write. Congratulations, Katie. Uh, next, we have James McClellan. James McClellan. James is graduating from North High School, plans to attend uh, school in Salina in the fall, where he will major in diesel mechanics. Says, Emmanuel has taught me, I am not truly in control of my life, God is. Plans for the future to operate and manage my own company. So there you go. Uh, next, we have Chance O'Connor. Chance, the chancellor. He's graduating from Southeast High School, plans to attend Wichita State University in the fall. Uh, he says, nearly everything I've learned about my faith has come from Emmanuel in one way or another. It's an amazing feeling to know that I have brothers and sisters in each and every member of our church. I can only hope to bring the same sense of loving community to everyone I know. Plans for the future. During college, I plan to be more involved in volunteer service around the city. Also, I'd like to continue the Bible study that we've started and extend that ministry to Wichita State as a campus ministry. So, yeah. Congratulations, Chance. Take your spot over there. I'm not shaking your hand. There we go. Oh! All right, next we have Christy Nice. She's graduating from Andover High School and plans to attend Wichita State University in the fall. She says, Emmanuel has taught me what it means to live a Christian life, how to be a leader and teacher, serve others with a good attitude, and how to be, in all caps, flexible, and how to keep a strong relationship with God. Plans for the future to come back and be a leader in the student ministry and uh, after getting a master's degree, becoming an eighth grade history teacher. There you go. Congratulations, Christine. 
Next, we have Spencer Rummery. He's graduating from Mays South High School. Also, plans to attend Wichita State University. Says Emmanuel has taught me, even though I don't know what I'm majoring in, I do know what the Lord says, for I know the plans I have for you, uh, plans for a hope and a future. Uh, plans for the future? To be gainfully employed. That's a repeat of one of my favorites. So, congratulations, Spencer. Next, we have Jacob Schlittenhart. Jacob is graduating from uh, homeschool, uh, plans to attend Wichita State University. Let's just have church out there on Sundays. Man, anyway. Emmanuel has taught me to confidently live as an example of Christ, always being prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks. Plans for the future. Eventually, I want to get married and have a family. My, my goal career-wise is to own my own marketing firm, Lord Willing. Good job. Congratulations, Jacob. By the way, these blue guys are in your worship guides, so there's a lot of comments that I'm not reading because it's lunchtime. <laughs> so you're welcome to take those with you and look at those. I didn't say that at the beginning, but uh, I'd encourage you to do that. Next, we have Zach Spencer. <laughs> Zach is graduating from Berean Academy. Uh, he plans to attend some community college, knocking out the basic classes while working. That's a good plan. Uh, Emmanuel has taught me, he says, I've learned to motivate my faith about different aspects of God that will help me rely on him and stay strong in my faith. Plans for the future, hopefully to be able to, at some point, enjoy the monotony of day-to-day -day life as per God's plans, of course. <laughs> so there you go. Congratulations, Zach. And last but not least, we have Lane Stanberry. Lane is graduating from Northwest High School, plans to attend Friends University in the fall. It says, Emmanuel has taught me how to be an effective disciple of Christ and withstand the many temptations of the world. Plans for the future. After Friends University, I'd like to attend the University of Kansas School of Pharmacy in hope of becoming a pharmacist as well as growing my faith. Congratulations, Lane. And so I'm going to ask them to uh, walk down to the front. Oh, they're going to give me. Okay. All right. Okay. Um, for all of you that don't really know Matt, don't know him um, super closely, he's not one um, to take a lot of credit. He's very humble, and he doesn't want us recognizing him like this. <laughs> but um, yeah, for sure, he does so much for us. We thank you so much um, just from the video before, and then here's something from all of us. Uh, just thank you so much for everything that you do. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Yeah, watch, walk down to the front, and I'm going to say something as you walk down to no, the front. No, I want them to go all the way to the back where I stand. Okay. All right. All the way to the back where I stand, make a, make a line back there. This, I, if you're not, if you're a, vet, a, a guest or a visitor today, we're sorry, this is kind of a family time, but uh, some of us have watched these kids grow up. I've been here almost nine years. They were not in diapers when I came, but hopefully you're not still in diapers. But anyway... Um, you got to go all the way back where I stand, guys. Come on. Dan, you got to lead them right, man. Come on. Come on, Christy. Led by Christy Niece. She is much like her grandmother. All right. <clears throat> Woo, did I say that, Judy? I'm sorry about that. Uh, if you were a parent of this graduate, would you stand? Let's recognize all parents. This is an accomplishment for you as well. 
If you're, continue standing. If you're a grandparent of these graduates, would you stand? It would not be possible without grandparents. Thank you for being here. All right, let's all stand and let's close with a word of prayer while they make it back there. Go back there, please, and congratulate our graduates. This is a great accomplishment, achievement for them. And if you would, please put them on your prayers. And I know they would appreciate it. Let me lead us in prayer. God, you got a decision? We have a all decision. right. All right, go for it, man. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we have also coming forward uh, this morning, Tim Clements, uh, and he is coming forward saying he has accepted Christ as his personal Lord and Savior and desires membership in our church. And so, Tim, if you would stand down at the front maybe, and then people can come shake your hand and, and get Take to know you. Take him back there with them, Gail. Okay. Yeah. All right. We're moving it this morning. You got to go he, back to he's that. He's going to graduate in a different plane. Yeah, there we go. He's a graduate today. Yeah. You lead us in prayer. Yeah. Hey, and let me just say, you know, like, I I really appreciate the video they put together and the gift and everything like that. But man, um, we already had parents stand. You guys are standing. Um, You will be hard pressed to find higher caliber people than the men and women that raised these people that are graduating this morning. And so I'd like to give them a round of applause because it has very little to do with me and it has very much to do with mom and dad and what happens at home. And so uh, let me just say uh, I appreciate you and appreciate your support in in that process. And uh, I know we've said, you know, that we're in a tough cultural climate. There's a lot of reasons to believe things are going to get worse, but there's 10 reasons uh, in the back to believe that that might not be the case, that things can get better. Uh, And so let me pray and we'll be dismissed. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for just the time that we could spend recognizing uh, the accomplishments, that the, the, the fruition that you brought about in the lives of our students who are graduating. And just thank you for the constant investment that you've allowed us to make in their lives, not only in student ministry, but in children's ministry and, uh, and all the way through. And so we, we thank you for uh, just the day to recognize them. And uh, we thank you for the decision that you brought in the form of Tim this morning and his acceptance of you. And Pray that you would continue to work and and, and honor uh, and glorify yourself in his life. And uh, so we pray that you'd be with us as we leave this place. Again, thank you for this morning. And we pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.